Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. On the podcast, I am very pleased to have with us Jed Hall. Jed is uh, DPP coach with Sale Sharks, youth development manager with Sandbach RFC, and a coach at Haberdasher's Abraham Derby School. So welcome to the podcast, Jed. Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks for having me. And I'm really looking forward to a good conversation. Well, yes, I'm looking forward to the conversation as well, because before the podcast started, you told me that you like to argue and uh, <laughs> you certainly like to have an opinion. So, um, um Batten down the hatches uh, because, uh, well, there may not be a storm coming, but I'm interested to stir the waters a little bit and see what's going on. So just quickly uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your coaching journey so far before I dig into a few questions. So I think I started coaching about five years ago. Um, I stopped playing because of concussions. So I wanted to stay involved with the game. So I started at a club called Essington as an assistant coach, um, made my way up through my badges, went to Stone um, in Staffordshire. I then spent two and a half years up at the Gentleman and Moor in Warrington. And recently I've started working with Sale as a youth coach uh, back Sandbach where I played as a kid. And I've also now started getting into school rugby at um, Abdab, which is wonderful. Lot on my plate, but really enjoy it. So again, uh, what's really good is I spoke to a coach uh, a couple of weeks ago, Garrett Davis, and uh, he coaches at lots of different levels as well. So it's quite good to coach at more than one place because you have quite a range of coaching experiences. Um, How do you find yourself being able to step out of one um, system, like a development system, maybe working with players who are perhaps new to the game or learning the game um at first i found it quite challenging that um and it was really um noticeable my first term with abdab where i'd gone from coaching kids at sale who were really eager to learn to maybe going to kids that had just finished at school and you know maybe wanted to have a bit more fun so it is a difficult process and um i spoke to a coach ages ago who always talked about putting different hats on yeah, not actual hats, but metaphorical <laughs> hats, that he would go to one session and he'd have one hat on. And I think it's just thinking about changing that mindset and changing your expectations um, throughout. So you might expect more from one lot of kids and from another lot of kids, you know, you just want to see them enjoy themselves and learn at the same time. So we're going to talk perhaps, perhaps about those challenges uh, when we get stuck into the question. So I know that you've been keen to talk about practice design. And uh, I've just actually read a very interesting paper from um, Cardiff Met. I think it was or Cardiff University. Apologies for those guys who've written it. And they were talking to um, ac- uh academy coaches and one of the problems they found was that across academy coaches the uh, the language was different so there's probably some slightly different language involved in here so the first question i'm going to ask you is what does practice design look like for you so if we go right back to the basics what is practice 
So if you're actually looking at dictionary practices, the repeated performance and activity to acquire or maintain proficiency. So the very, very basics of practices, it should be a repeated performance, whether that's through a game, a drill or anything else. The next part is design. So again, writing a plan to demonstrate what we, something's going to look like before it's made. Now, I think those two you combine and you start to get an idea that practice design means developing a plan um, based on improving rugby performance. Now, it's not just that basic because there's so much um, different methodologies towards practice design that it can look a little bit messy. Um, so what it doesn't look like for me is turning up with a bag of balls and just letting players play. You know, it's not just throwing it out there and going, let's get on with it. Um, what as well it isn't is, um, you know, throwing in random games or skills just because it's fun. For me, practice design is really designing sessions which assist players in developing mastery of the game. And that's within an enjoyable environment. Now, uh, one of the words which, again, is probably needs a little bit more thought about what it actually really means to us and to the players. What do you understand by mastery? Yeah, I was going to say this is going to be one of those words that people hear and probably attach a bit more to it than we think about. Um, mastery can be anything um, in terms of skill acquisition. So simply catching a ball is mastery. You are mastering that skill of being able to manipulate your hands and catch a ball. Being able to run through a gap, you've mastered running through a gap. There's such an elitist um, viewpoint of the word of mastery that people attach to it and really don't come back to think about the real basics. So my understanding of mastery um, above and beyond what you've just said is that it's not that you could just do it. Uh, it's that you understand why you're doing it and if you do it wrong that you know in your own mind what you got to do to improve it or not even prove it but what it should look like now of course the coach might help you out in saying you might say well I know I've got to catch the ball in this particular way uh, so I've I have mastered the skill in that sense but I need more support in in developing it so I suppose uh, mastery uh, is different for different players. So if you're working with the youngest players, what would um, say if you take, what's the young year, youngest year group you take? I teach under 12, so that's year seven now. Year seven. So what would you expect from them in terms of what they can master? <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Because um, I tend to work backwards from a game. So in terms of what I would expect from mastery tends to be if you look at that under 12 age grade rules. So it's starting to get to the point now where they're running with the ball. So I would expect a player to be able to run with the ball and hold the ball. Um, I'd expect somebody to be able to pass it and catch it while moving, which proves difficult still. It's amazing. Um, and simple things like the tackle, um, something that people, you know, forget is a really difficult skill to master for some kids so there's probably three things um do we really expect them at the age of 11 to master tactical thinking and all the rest of it maybe not but definitely the basics of you know i can't make it through all these people by myself i need to pass the ball and move now going back to uh, the pass and catch um inevitably some of the players will 
be very good handlers and others will be really struggling with it. So we know that there's going to be a different different skill levels and different levels of mastery between the players. Um, how are you going to, uh, within your practice design, work around the fact that some players are going to be good already and some players are going to be uh, behind that curve? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because this is where... Um progression and regression really comes into sessions now it might be that you set some players more challenges so your better players get uh, more difficult challenges they might have to pass further distance um so you might set up a grid um using your old four by four passing where the better players can actually pass a bit further and for weaker players it's maybe a shorter pass um it is difficult, and especially if you are coaching alone, it is difficult to really get all those skill groups into one. Um, and co-coaching is wonderful there, where you can take players off and really develop those skills individually. Now, going back to the practice design now, so you've uh, you've maybe worked out that you've got to do different skills for the different players. Um, now, you're coaching across uh, at least three different teams, so I don't know how many sessions that equals per week. Um, how how detailed do your plans look like? Do they look like a uh, a full sheet of A4, or are there a couple of scribbled notes on the back of your hand? Um, I tend to develop sessions with an A4 piece of paper. Um, since I've joined Sale, my uh, session designs really um, changed. Um, so my sessions for Sale will tend to be quite detailed. You know, it will say we're going to play this game. This is what we're looking for. This is what the skill zone is probably going to look like. So just uh, uh, just tell us what a skill zone is then. Um, so a skill zone will tend to be a breakout from a game or a bigger session just to work with smaller groups. Um, and it might be on a very specific kind of thing. So And this is this is pre-planned. It's not, uh, it's not when you're watching the game, you say, oh, actually, we need to improve this particular skill. We know that this game will probably reveal that the players need to work harder at this skill. Yeah, and I think this comes into a bit more um, something we're going to discuss a little bit later, which is tactical periodization, right. where we start to use the game as the uh, benchmark and work backwards. So we should already know before getting into that session maybe what our players struggle with. So if we know that we have players that can't, you know, pass that well, we might design our session to improve that passing, with the idea of improving that mastery and hopefully letting them get more out of the game. That's right. I'm going to interrupt there. That's interesting because um, it's made me think about how we watch a game uh, and we watch training, because quite often the sense is that you'd be watching a game in training and uh, by observing you see, or actually the players need to work on this and they might identify it and that's what you might need to work on. However what you should be doing really in planning you're suggesting is that the skill zone is you probably know what they're going to be struggling with and therefore this is part of you building up a bank of skills as opposed to reacting on the spot to well just a moment they can't uh, pass so effectively off their left hand or they're struggling to offload out of contact is that is that um, the sense of what what you're doing with the skill zones yeah, I think definitely that that's what we're trying to do is, you know, anticipate need and work from there. 
Um, I think if you start to become a bit too reactive, then sessions become disjointed and maybe things go wrong. Um, people have said to me before that they tend to prefer the reactive and find it a bit more rewarding. Um, I think it reveals a lot about how the way I think that I like that bit of structure to say, right, we're going to do this today. How well have we done this? It's almost that plan, do, review kind of cycle with um, practice design for me. So uh, we're thinking then, uh, so I'm just going to focus on uh, a particular practice because I think it's very interesting for listeners to say, right, I've designed this practice uh, to do this. So what is it going to look like? So on this A4 sheet, what is actually on there and how hard do you keep to the timings? Yeah, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because timings can either be something you actually absolutely rigid to or you get lost in and you can spend 40 minutes doing something that you might take 10 doing but um so on my sheet it will tend to be right this is the general idea of what we're going to do so let's say we're creating a game which focuses on passing we're saying right it's going to be three passes from a rook so the constraint is three passes from a rook um what do i think might go wrong so players might not run onto the ball because they're too focused on the passing. So what questions do we need to ask? What little tweaks and areas are there? What possible progressions have we got? What possible regressions have we got? So if they start to really smash this three passes, do we go to four passes? Do we go to five passes? If they're really struggling with the three, do we go to the two? And it's thinking about all those little bits that come through. And I always like to, um, after every little bit, I was right purpose what is the purpose of me doing this and I should be able to link that purpose back to the um, session goal so Can you give me some examples then because uh, if we follow which I think is a very good way of thinking about probably practice design is apes act as purposeful enjoyable exciting and uh, safe so it's interesting trying to understand exactly what purposeful looks like so uh, what, what sort of language would you be using for purposeful and what sort of language would you, would you be using for goals? So um, for me, um, if we talk about purposeful, within my purpose, it will say, so use an example from FGC I've just pulled up. Um, the session is based on cutting down options in defence. So the purposeful says, you know, putting pressure on players in attack. So that purpose of that game is to do that exact thing which ties into the game uh, principle. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then again, the goal for me with that learning moment would say, right, are we actually now starting to see players move up and really close down as a defender? Right, so it's very clear to you what you want to get, and probably you're using that language of the players as well. So when you, uh, you're asking questions back, you're checking back, they're saying, well, the purpose of this is, and that... That gives it direction because I think, as you said, uh, one of the dangers is that some people will go along and they'll throw a ball in here and say, "We'll play the game." And as the game develops, they will say, "Right, okay, well, it's obvious we need to work on this." Now, there is there is something to be said, uh, and there's lots actually to be found from challenging the players and then moving in those directions. Uh, but if you're trying to put together, um, in a sense, a curriculum or a developmental plan for the players they they need to fit the parts together rather than reacting to 
what's happening in each individual game. Um, so go back to the practice design now, because I'm obviously uh, I'm delving very deep into the, the detail then. So if you could give me an example, say, of the first 30 minutes of a session, how would that break down? Um, so the first 30 minutes tends to be a warm up. Um, I know it became a fad for a while not to warm up. Um, and you now look at the RFU Activate courses, which have had to come back to uh, teach people how to do warm ups. Mm. Um, and if you go to your four coact- coactive model, you know, physical is a big part of it. So we need to produce pl- rugby players that are capable of playing the game. And that could be stretching, that could be, you know, little bits of strength work, it could be little short runs, that kind of thing. It tends to involve a game as well, so it might be three minutes of, you know, a conditioned touch game, mm-hmm. uh, break down into a stretch, back into the game, stretch, back into the game. So it's always um, active, and it isn't just, you know, a block of 10 minutes of stretching, which no one really wants to do, but <laughs> we're getting it done anyway. Um, from there, it will tend to go into a basic game, and it's using the old old whole part whole kind of principle kind of thing. Mm. So it might be a game that kind of introduces the idea of what we're trying to work towards that day. So again, like we're saying, you know, with the passing through the hands, it might be that the first game is that two touch kind of game. So just give me an example of how that because some people will say, Oh yes, I use that all the time. Um, and it might be different for you and the others who will be not certain exactly what you mean by a two-touch game. I've said two-touch, haven't I, instead of two-pass. <laughs> uh, right, OK. Well, OK, two-pass game then. Um, so, again, a two-pass game would be if there's a tackle, it's either down and present and two passes away from the rook, or, you know, two passes from a touch, from a pass and turn. But it's making sure that there's that kind of ball movement throughout. Right, so what, what are the, what's the purpose then? So I'm obviously drilling in again on you here, putting you under pressure. What's the purpose of a two-pass game? Because I'm just putting on my uh, difficult hat. Um, surely the first receiver is not going to be marked by any defender because uh, they know that another pass is coming. So you're taking a decision away from that first uh, first attacker, first receiver. Yeah, and this is always a pitfall I find people fall into with this game in that they actually enforce it has to be two passes, otherwise you can't score. Now, if there was a gap right in front of your first receiver, you'd want them to run through and make that score, wouldn't you? Yeah. So if we take away, if we say to the defence, right, you can leave that first player alone, is actually simulating the game because is there any pressure on that passer? Again, so the defence have still got to think about, I've still got to do this job. And it's working both sides of the ball at the same time. So there's going to be pressure on the passer. Uh, the defence is trying to push up and get the touch to make it turn over. And then there's that second pass. What does that second pass look like? Are we still going forwards? Or is that first receiver you know, maybe stopped? So it's all these little kind of things that we need to think about. You know, and they are the tiny little details that we need to work on. Right, OK. Well, I, I mean, I'm, and that sort of helps us uh, see that uh, obviously, if the defence leave that first guy away, uh, then he can run off and score, can't he? So uh, uh, that uh, put that puts that pressure on. So what are the challenges then that you get? So would you use this with the sale team and with the uh, the under twelves? 
this tends to be quite a uh, game that I think anyone can really use because it is um, using that handling and it is that awareness and attack. And if we go back to, you know, game principles, they are the same throughout the game. We're always going forward. We're always looking for support, continuity. They're always the same in every game. So and it what, is something that's generic. Yeah, so what does a touch look like in your touch games? Um, for younger age groups, it mm. tends to be, as long as you can get a hand on, that's fine. Mm. As you move up, it tends to be two hands on the waist. Right. And, I mean, I know that uh, there's a version, uh, it's, there's lots of different names for it, but the one that uh, I've heard is shoulder touch. Uh I think I first heard it from uh, uh, they used to use it in Australia years and years ago, where actually you just got to engage the shoulder and that's a touch. Now, obviously, you can't use that with t- under 12s because they'll be thumping into each other all over the place. Um, so we, we've got we've got to have that idea of the defence working hard. So we're playing that game. How long does that game go on for? That'll probably go on for about 10 minutes or until you can start identifying maybe the areas where things aren't working. Right. And if you can identify them, can you get players to identify them? So if passes aren't great under pressure, do we need then to go into a skill zone and replicate that pressure with a maybe a shorter loop? So instead of maybe that player being under pressure every three minutes, he's constantly under that pressure because we've gone into a small drill and that kind of pressure is being replicated again and again and again. So um, they, they are breaking off so uh, into the smaller groups. So the the big game, how many a side would that roughly be? If you were per coach uh, per game, what would that uh, what the num- what would be the numbers? I think I've always found that smaller teams tend to work better. Um, so even over about the age of twelve, anything seven aside is probably about right. Unless we're trying to play, you know, big games which have a lot of tactical moving parts in. Mm. So it tends to be about seven, maybe with a coach with each. So if you can get four coaches with four <laughs> teams, you're laughing. Yeah. Um, we're very lucky at Sale in that I think we have eight coaches for 30 kids. Oh, fantastic. So there is a lot of detail placed on each person. But again, you know, I know with working at um, Abdab, where it can be me with just, you know, 18 kids it can be difficult but ideally for me it tends to be about seven coach uh, seven players to a coach and that really allows us then to really dig down and work with individuals and then into the skill zone how what uh, how do you break that down numbers wise again it'll tend to be 18 so it could be your six or seven will go into a skill zone and work within that so again it's quite small it's quite tight and again, that allows us to do a lot of work um, and get that feedback loop closed quite quickly. So we can feedback really quickly and that we can start making solutions rather than having to wait. Right. So let's uh, let's delve into feedback then. And um, what are you doing feedback wise, which you were, say, not doing three or four years ago? Um, my big thing is asking questions you know i don't think not a lot of people are using questions that much three or four years ago and at the start of my coaching journey i think you were still you know you look at what coaching is on tv and it's very dictatic it's mm-hmm. you must do this 
the coach is always, has always has the right answer. Um, I found that feedbacks become a lot more of a two-way thing. So you are asking them and saying, right, well, why didn't that work? What can change? And it's been more constructive and giving the solution rather than highlighting the problem. So, you know, you're not telling a player that he's just dropped the ball because he knows that. You're telling him, you know, get your hands up. Let's, you know, give him a target to pass to, if he's still using the passing example. And um, in in that then, some of the feedback is um, helping them discover the solutions. Uh, some of the feedback is handing out some knowledge, some learning. So I think... Um, uh, there's a lot of talk about questions and how we question. Uh, I'm quite interested to think about how you would give some new, new knowledge to that player. So, for instance, uh, you've got a player who obviously isn't particularly good at a certain aspect of passing, and you're going. You need. You now know that you need to give him some information on that. How would you approach that? Um. Individually, again, this is another case where having loads of coaches is brilliant, where you can have another coach take them off and just go through what we call almost microscopic uh, detail. Mm. So it'll be rather than humiliating somebody in front of everyone, you mm. stand and go, okay, well, this is the basics, and let's really work from the basics and get the confidence in that and work all the way through. And, you know, it's being honest. You know, if you say, oh, you've nearly got it, but next time do this, and they've not actually got any idea, <laughs> let's just actually be honest and say, look, you need to get your hands like this and break it down as much as we need to. I think there's a lot of times where, as coaches, we tend to think that players know what we're thinking mm. and tend to talk you know, too widely. Sometimes we really need to go down into that tight detail. Yeah, I'm talking to Doug Lemoff the other week um, about this, and we uh, he, he's got this lovely phrase called uh, "averaging up." That coaches will say, "Yeah, that's that's okay. You're nearly there," and uh, the player thinks, "Oh yes, I've I've cracked that." And as you were saying that, well, actually, you need to do this as well. So you've got to be able to correct them, uh, but you can't do it all the time. So, in, though you're probably not working on the percentages. Uh, at the time how often are you talking to them being active it depends um if i'm talking about um tackling which tends to be a bit more my forte um i'm actually talking all the time i found but that will tend to be i'm trying to get them to think about little bits and pieces so talk about tackling because say it's a bit easier for me if i'm talking to somebody that's going into a tackle and think, saying, you know, think about your foot, think about your foot. And it will tend to be, in terms of that skill acquisition level, there will be a lot of feedback and a lot of instruction. So there'll be quite a lot going on. As they go up, it tends to be, you know, it cuts off. And it might be a bit more of a question about, okay, how do you think that kind of went? So I think at those learning levels, there's a lot more feedback and a lot more questioning about what's going on just to really start reiterating in the player's mind what needs to be done. So you're saying to a player, think about the foot. So obviously before they're thinking about the foot, they've had some 
knowledge of what that foot's got to do. Yeah. Uh, first of all, what's the foot got to do? Okay, so for me, it's always something called breaking the V. So if you think with a ball carrier, we'll have their legs slightly apart as they're running. What we're trying to do is get our foot into that V of the foot. So does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So the player now knows knows that. Yeah. Um, and, and then I'm assuming you're going to go through some exercises, activities, drills, whatever we want to call it, where they build up that understanding through some repetitions yeah. um, and then when you're into um, a more decision making maybe more chaotic situation then you are maybe saying to them think about the foot think the f- about the foot all the time so that's like a reminder and then after that you're helping them reflect by asking them questions yeah definitely I mean we'll always model something before we go into it so if I'm talking about breaking the V of a player, I'll ask them to demonstrate what does that look like. And we look at it and we say, right, that's breaking the V. We've getting that foot in the middle, that V's broken. Like you say, then we'll start maybe with a simple drill, just break that V for me. Keep doing that, keep doing that, keep doing that. And then within the skill zone, we'll go into an even smaller game of, you know, um, using the Swiss ball. Have you seen that online? Yeah. Um, and again, we're just really hammering on those basics of breaking the V, getting down and low. And that's where the cue is, you know, break the V, break the V, break the V. When they don't do it, okay, where was your foot? I thought it was behind me. Okay, what are you going to do next time? Break the V. Yeah. And it's quick, amazing how quickly it uh, picks up. Yeah, and there's a, the repetition and the signals and the cues as well help, help them to get there. Certainly in the early stages uh, the idea that the players can pick up all this information and process it very quickly is is a mistake you have to give them reminders and then like uh, like learning to ride the bike the uh, you take the stabilizers away and then uh, let them go and of course they're going to fail and fall off uh, however you've just given them that um, uh, scaffolding uh, beforehand okay so because we've been talking about um, the tackle um what i want to jump to is uh contesting possession because Mm -hmm. i know you've been thinking uh, around this a lot um and sort of challenging what we mean by contesting possession possession can you tell us uh, about your current lines of reasoning or thinking at the moment yeah this comes from uh, mike forshaw who is the sales sharks defensive coach and he talks about how the, the contest of possession is really the start of the attack, which makes complete sense if you think about it. If we can turn the ball over, we get the opportunity to attack. Um, it's something that some people are very, very good at. Um, and I find it tends to be quite a natural trait in people. But again, it's something that um, I don't think coaches are too keen on coaching. Um They talk about the jackal, but maybe don't know what it means. So you tend to see a lot of teams that will go in for the ball when they don't need to. And there's a lot of mental modelling around it. It is, you know, I think contest of possession is something that um, maybe kids aren't particularly great with because it is a lot of decision making. So it is quite an advanced skill in a way. So what, so what do you mean by mental modelling? So 
if there's a rook with two people in in attack and that rook's nicely set, is there actually any worth in you going to try and contest possession or do you stay out and wait for your next opportunity? Now, there's a lot of impulsivity in kids that will say, well, I'm going to try and still take these people out and you're weakening defence and that next chance to contest possession maybe isn't there. You know, it's about being patient and waiting for your chance to strike. So I think within younger players, that mental ability to delay and, you know, work the phases, as much as people hate that phrase, Hmm. isn't there. How do you, I mean, this is, as you say, it's quite a difficult um, line of understanding for any player. And um, some players have got it naturally and they can see it very quickly. But for the, the players who can't, how are we going to help them to understand when to jump in or to move away? I think a lot of that tends to be, it has to be really explicit. So you have to turn around and say, look, if there's somebody there in a really good body position and you show them a good body position um, from an attacking rooker looks like, it tends to be, don't go in there. And that might then again come back into a game where they might go in and you might say, well, why didn't you win that ball? Well, because he was in a really good body position. I just couldn't get through him. And it's that kind of thing of talking and engaging with people and making sure that they understand why they're doing stuff and why it doesn't come off sometimes. So we're delving into their their thought processes because obviously there's some technical things which uh, you need to be able to do as well. And uh, in training, we might work through some jackal exercises but there's a lot of decision making whether to go in and go out so in a in a training session when you can't do full-on games how would you help players or create scenarios where players can decide whether to go into challenge to steal the ball which we'll call jackaling and for them to maybe step out and wait for the next ruck or tackle situation um, again, that will tend to be for me, if I'm using touch, it'll be one over. So if a defending player can get over the ball and actually stand over the ball rather than um, get onto it, that will be a turnover. Because their thinking is then, right, OK, I've got the decision because there's nobody there or somebody's going to get there late. I can get over the ball myself. Right. So I'm just going to have to take a, a couple of steps back then. So we're playing a game of touch. Yeah. And... Uh, the ball carrier gets two-handed touched by a defender. Yeah. So in order for um, a turnover to be affected in that game, what has that defender got to do? What has that got to look like uh, to the referee? So let's say the defender has made such. What I would expect for them is to go down to their chest first to replicate making the tackle. That's because in the game, we're not always going to get the opportunity to be on our feet and get over straight away. Yep. So we're going down, and then we're looking. Has that attacker got any support coming over him? And if not, can we get over that ball before the um, next attacking rocket gets there? Right. Now, we could then start to progress it and say, okay, well, this time, a plus one defender, as we'll call them, can actually come in earlier and get over that ball. Because then again, we're starting to work both sides of the defense uh, game. So the attack have got to think about getting that support player over early. And the next man in the tackle, the plus one, can look and start to assess, can he get over the ball next? 
can he help his mate out who's made a really good tackle? And can we then start contesting possession that way? All right, and now you're sort of they, the players are not only looking at technique, they're making decisions on whether to step in and step out. And I'm assuming in terms of the feedback, you're giving them feedback on the run or you're giving them feedback after the game, um, after, that, after that particular training game? It would be a mix. Um, if players are going in and they're really judging it wrong and you can do it on the fly and say, okay, why didn't that work? Well, because that attack was right over the ball. That's um, something you do on the fly. If it's something that's happening again and again and again, maybe that's when you turn around and say, okay, can somebody tell me why we aren't making turnovers? Or, you know, why isn't it working? What do we need to do a little bit better? And in your experience then, so when I look at uh, the different uh, age groups you're taking, so with the, uh, if I can pronounce Hab-Abs kids, what sort of mistakes are they making more often uh, and that you've got to step in to Um, deal with? They really love um, going in for turnovers. Um, I was like really lucky to inherit this lot because they love turnovers, which makes me happy. Um, (laughs) But they will go in for absolutely everything. And the big, big problem I see is people not presenting the ball after turning it over. So they will get the hands on the ball and they'll wait for the penalty um, rather than bring it back and let's play off it. You know, let's turn that defence into attack. That transition maybe isn't really there at the minute. So that's, again, that's the next part. We talk about transitions from attack to defence. So if we've contested possession and won it, what do we then do with it? All right, so that's often the game is that you'll just call a turnover and then the game will restart with um, a, a penalty and that sort of thing. But actually, you're suggesting that, yeah, we've won the ball back, let's play from it. And let's, yeah. uh, let's see what we, we how we can uh, deal with that. Yeah, because I think that's the next part of the game is thinking about that transition and the better players can do it. Um, sadly, people are used to seeing the premiership where people are just anchoring onto the ball and you know they're waiting for the penalty um you don't particularly get that going down the leagues intact if you anchor onto the ball it tends to be more a case of you know hands away next person's there so how quickly can we get it and start playing yeah so one of the things i've i've tried to develop in that is that uh, you've actually got to lift the ball to win win the penalty and well if you're going to lift the ball then you might as well lift it back to your own team um so if uh, uh curry did it on the weekend uh well uh this was against scotland so this will be coming out a couple of weeks after the scotland game uh where he actually picked the ball up and pulled it back to his own team so that may be a way of um in- encouraging the turnover so do do you have set uh plays you want off the after the turnover or do you just say let's play let's play no it tends to be a let's play because if you think about a turnover um well, one, I think the only real rule I have is move the ball away from the turnover. So let's not, you know, catch the ball and then try and run into a defence where there's maybe a load of attack, well, people that were just going towards an attacking rook of suddenly defenders. Let's move the ball. But apart from that, we should be looking for gaps. We should be looking for those, you know, spaces to attack into. Uh, and just another question on the contest possession um, game. So if there's a contest uh, of possession, it just slows down the touch ruck a little bit. It just makes it, instead of a, 
um, a half a second ruck where it flies out. Uh, because there's a chance of a contest possession, it turns into maybe a two or three second ruck. Um, my thought there is that quite often in touch rugby, the next person, anyone is the next person in plays the clearing pass or the scrum half. And the reality of the game, uh, I'm not saying that we should make it this way, is that you're probably better off having a proper clearing passer in there. Um, now, I'm sort of throwing this at you, really. How do you feel about trying to maybe designate two or three players to be the clearing passers in a game of touch rugby? Because then it's easier to create shape. Because if you know that, um, let's say, player A and player B in the red team are always clearing, you're not sort of sending in the wrong player and then they can reset themselves. Is that uh, does that make sense? I'm just uh, throwing it out to you as something you might try or you might say, no, that's rubbish. We'll never use that. No, it's definitely something that um, I've been doing with the under-12s at Sandbatch. Um, we have a lot of players who are, shall we say, enthusiastic mm-hmm. and will always be the person that will make the pass and they'll try and do everything. So they'll try and catch their own pass and get over their own rook, which mm-hmm. is great. But like you say, suddenly that structure's going and... As much as we hate the word structure, it is kind of needed. And we do need people to think, well, hang about. My role is to do X. My role is to do Y. So rather than having somebody, you know, stand over a rook and think, what should I do? Let them get over the rook. Let somebody else do the job that they need to. Um, Because at the end of the day, rugby is a team game and everyone needs to do their little role. um, Because otherwise it's just chaos. Yeah, and most chaos may be really fun to watch. It break down really quickly. Um, so yeah, I always say right, you need a designated dine on your team, and it might not be the best thing, but you know, and it's not always the same kids at the nine. It always changes, but we need to get that thinking in that um, a scrum half comes in and clears it for me, um, unless you can get a pop off or you know that little picking goes on. But mm. really starting to think about that structure is important for me. And I think uh, uh, that we probably um, look back at what we think is chaos. It's probably got a lot more structure in it. Uh, they're just moving very, very quickly into position. The The French teams of the 70s uh, looked like they had no structure, but they had a thing called the family of the ball. So every player knew their relationship to the ball and therefore they were able to adjust themselves and to find the right space, either to be close in and support the ball carrier or to be further away from the ball to create width. Because otherwise we're going to have, uh, it's like bees around the honeypot, uh, which is often the case at, say, under eights and under nines. And you spend all that time then trying to, to spread them out, which, of course, of course, is a challenge. Now, so just uh, this is from my last uh, point about the, uh, the contesting the possession. Um, at what stage in training do you go bone on bone, especially with the, say, the Sail Sharks DPP players? So just remind me, how old are they? They will be from 13 to 15. Right. So obviously you've got a duty of care because they've got to go and play their school rugby and their club rugby. Um, how often do you get them to uh, take chunks out of each other? Um, so we get them every two weeks um, on a Monday evening, so the day after they've played for their club. 
and two days right. before they play for their school normally. Um, so it will tend to be maybe 20 minutes at the end, um, which is okay, I guess. Um, I'd like it to be more, but like you say, we have that player welfare to think about. And there's a lot of stuff that you can do around the contest of possession that doesn't need to be bone on bone. Like we said, we've already said it's quite a technical thing to think about. Um, you know, so it, it tends to be 20 minutes towards the end of a session. I wish it could be so much more. Um, but, you know, that's me. I'm bloodthirsty. <laughs> Well, bloodthirsty uh, can be quite a good thing for a, a coach uh, in, certain, in certain circumstances, but uh, sometimes we have to uh, step back. Jed, Jed, I know I've got a whole bunch of other questions uh, to delve into, but uh, I hope we'll be able to uh, catch up another time. But thank you very much for your time and your insights into the different levels that you're coaching at. So, um yeah, it was really interesting to uh, catch up with your views on it. Thank you very much, Dan. I uh, really enjoyed talking about it. Um, it's amazing how much you don't know when you start talking to another person about coaching. <laughs> well, yeah, but being put on the spot is also uh, quite hard. And uh, I did throw you a few sidewinders in there. So don't think that uh, you uh, you knew every single question which was uh, coming your way. But uh, that great to um, get the get the sort of idea of what it's like to be working with uh, different age groups, which uh, I think is always a challenge and different, different levels as well. I mean, when you're working with the, the DPP players, they're so super keen and they're very talented. I mean, they are raw, uh, but it's not, not difficult to get them, uh, get them going very quickly. When you're working with a school side or a, a club side, it, it is different. Anyway, uh, well, I look forward to uh, speaking to you, again very soon uh this is a rugby coach weekly podcast if you want to find out more go to the rugbycoachweekly.net website click on the podcast button to see this podcast and a whole bunch of other ones so thanks again to jed for his time and thank you very much for listening thanks for listening to rugby coach weekly podcast if you want to hear more podcasts, head over to RugbyCoachWeekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.